Welcome back to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. Last episode, we took a look at the life of Philip the Bold and the beginnings of the growing state of Burgundy. This time, action in Burgundy will heat up, and we'll look at Philip's son, John the Fearless, who was perhaps even more ambitious, certainly less inclined to care about what his actions would cost the Kingdom of France, and definitely willing to use any means at his disposal to get what he wanted. Maps and images can be found on the website almostforgotten.squarespace.com. Comments or questions can be directed there, or send me an email at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com, or find me on Twitter, at the Almost Forgot. This is Season 6, Episode 3. It's Burgundy Part 3, John the Fearless. And this is the Almost Forgotten. Philip the Bold's son, John, was born on May 28, 1371, in the Duchy of Burgundy's capital of Dijon, and he probably spent much of his youth in Rouvre in Burgundy. He did speak Flemish and may have been tutored in Bruges, or perhaps by a scholar from Bruges. He was named after his grandfather, King John the Good. Upon the death of his maternal grandfather, Louis of Maul, in 1384, he was named the Count of Nevers, which was a county just west of Burgundy. Of course, in 1385, he was married to Margaret of Bavaria, daughter of the Duke of Bavaria. John's sister, Margaret of Burgundy, married the future Duke of Bavaria. And if we include his mother, Margaret of Flanders, it appears that almost every woman at the time was named Margaret. Now, John wasn't necessarily a catch, other than his huge tracts of land. Calmette's description is not subtle, and he quotes some earlier authors as well though I won't confuse you by giving the quotes within quotes thing this time. He writes, quote, He was, we are told, a small dark man with blue eyes, a full face, an unfaltering glance, an uncompromising jaw, a massive squashed head, unquote. Calmette goes on, quote, He was coarse and devoid of charm. He had no fluency of speech, cared little about his appearance, neglected his clothes, unquote. But like I said, he had huge tracts of land, so, well, it all worked out for John and his father Philip. John may have not been a beautiful French prince, but he was smart, he was brave, and boy was he ambitious. He was intelligent, and he was never afraid to take risks. And ugly or not, the people really liked him. It may have been that he didn't look too different from them most of the time. He was not given any real responsibilities in his late teens or early 20s. Sure, he got an education that was typical for a high-ranking French nobleman. He accompanied Philip on campaign to crush one of the Flemish rebellions and spent time with him in Paris, but he was never really trusted to do anything. Then, in his 20s, he was given an opportunity to prove himself. The Ottomans had overrun the Balkan Peninsula, and Philip the Bold saw an opportunity to sponsor a crusade in an attempt to take back territory, I guess, but mostly to make Burgundy look strong and powerful. Philip had planned to go, 
But when Louis of Orléans and the English John of Gaunt wouldn't go, he decided to send his son John instead as the leader of the expedition. The army left Paris in April of 1396 and went to Dijon for a bunch of celebrations before setting off into the Holy Roman Empire. They picked up some friends along the way. There were plenty of estimates of how many went along, but let's go with about 16,000. That included French, Burgundians, English, Bohemians, Savoyards, Castilians, Venetians, Genoans, Wallachians, Hungarians, Bulgarians, and Byzantines. But in the end, it was all for naught. They made their way to Buda before traveling down to Nicopolis. There was serious infighting, no unity of command, and it seems no concept of what they were facing. What followed was a disaster. With the Turkish army marching toward them, the French were clueless on what they were in for. King Sigismund, the future enemy of the Hussites, suggested they let the Hungarian infantry take out the inexperienced Turkish front line, but the French pride wouldn't allow that, and they insisted on being in the vanguard. They mowed down the infantry, but ended up having to go up a hill, into wooden stakes set there to stop their horses. Thinking they had basically won, they dismounted and kept going, and ran right into the Turkish cavalry. They were soon surrounded, many of them were killed, and John was captured. Now John held some blame in this debacle, but he was young, and he deferred leadership to some more experienced French knights, who thought they knew better than everyone else. That being said, he was given the authority to make the right choices. It's not clear that some of the older French knights would have allowed it without protest, but either way, he didn't seem to argue with all of their poor decisions. Sigismund blamed the defeat on the, quote, pride and vanity of the French, unquote. John, though, was reported to have fought bravely, because it is said that this is the day he earned his nickname. In French, he became Jean Sans Peur, which directly translates to John Without Fear, although we call him John the Fearless. I wish we all called him John Without Fear in English. That sounds cooler, but I'm not in charge of such things. Actually, at this time, Jean, which is French for John, was a name caught up in a transitionary period. Derived from the Latin Johannes, which came from a Greek version of a Hebrew name, in Old French it was pronounced more like Jean, and in Late Old French it was more like Jean. Middle French was sort of the way of speaking by the 14th century, but John the Fearless and others with the same name wrote it as if it was still Old French, J-E-H-A-N. But I'm pretty confident none of them called each other Jehan. They were probably somewhere between Jean and Jean. Okay, linguistic tangent over. John was not the only one captured in the crusade. Boussicot, the Marshal of France, and Philip, the Count of Eu, who may have been the pride and vanity ringleader, were also taken prisoner. Sigismund was able to escape with much of the Hungarian contingent, but the crusade was all over. A total disaster, expensive, with significant loss of life, and it was made even more expensive after all the ransoms. And John was ransomed. When he returned home in February of 1398, about a year after the battle, he was welcomed as a returning hero. Upon his return, he still wasn't really put in charge of anything per se, but he did travel around in his father's territories, 
and he did have some responsibilities. In addition to hanging out with Dad in Paris for part of the time and acting as his advisor, John traveled to Lille and other parts of Arras and West Flanders. He spent, along with his family, significant time in the Duchy of Burgundy, certainly more than Philip did around the beginning of the 1400s. While there, he acted as his father's representative, and whether this was what he had in mind or not, it likely helped ingratiate him with the Ducal Council and other leaders there in Dijon. This would allow a more seamless transition, at least in that power base, when his inheritance came through. So when his father died in 1404, John became the new Duke of Burgundy. He gave the title the Count of Nevers to his younger brother, also named Philip, so we'll call him Philip of Nevers, so we don't confuse him with their dad. Now this skipped over the middle son, Anthony, but if you recall from last episode, Anthony was all set to be Duke of Brabant as soon as Aunt Joanna died. John's mother, Margaret, did not outlive her husband very long and died within a year of Philip the Bold. With that, Philip the Bold's schemes came to fruition as John inherited his mother's titles. He was not ruling in the name of anyone, unlike his father. Instead, he was, in addition to being the Duke of Burgundy, the Count of Flanders and Artois, and the Count of Burgundy, that is to say, the Count of Franche-Comte. He gave his title of Count of Charolais, a region within the Duchy of Burgundy, to his son Philip. This Philip is not John's brother, Philip of Nevers. It's the heir to the Duchy of Burgundy, the eventual Philip the Good. So we'll call him that to avoid more Philip confusion. But this division of lands did not split up Burgundy or weaken it in any way. Richard Vaughn writes, quote, There was no question of a division of the Burgundian state, of the power which had been created and maintained by Philip the Bold. It was ruled by John the Fearless, unquote. As far as John's relationship with the French crown goes, his son Philip the Good was married to Michelle, the daughter of King Charles VI while John's oldest daughter, Margaret the 32nd, I mean Margaret of Nevers, married the Dauphin, the son of King Charles VI, who was also named Louis. Another double marriage, much like John's own. This was actually also arranged by Philip the Bold, although it wasn't finalized until after his death. It was an attempt to make himself as relevant as possible in France. His reasons were, well, we'll turn to Vaughn again. Quote, In France, John simply followed the policy of his father to try to maintain influence and control in order to protect his own interests and exploit French resources for his own advancement. Unquote. Remember, King Charles the Mad was still pretty mad, but John was three years younger than the king and new to power himself so he couldn't easily be a legitimate regent the way his father, the king's uncle, could. But with the new roles and the new familial ties, there was an opportunity for John to rule from behind the scenes, as sort of his lead advisor, as it were, if he played his cards right. Sitting across from him at the card table, though, was the king's younger brother, Louis of Orléans. And John, the Duke of Berry, Philip the Bold's older brother, was now the only surviving son of King John. He tried to balance those two factions, and they would definitely end up being factions. 
After Philip the Bold's death, Louis stepped in as the lead regent. But he wasn't particularly popular with the Parisian public. He tried to antagonize the English and renew hostilities in the Hundred Years' War, while John, with his interests in peace, prosperity, and lucrative trade and taxes in the Low Countries, very much did not want that to happen. He also didn't want to raise the taxes that would be necessary to break the truce and wage war again, once again driven by his interests in the Netherlands. As far as conflict with the English went, John actively worked to keep the peace, following the same path his father took. At times, he was, as a prince of France, obliged to take part in conflict. But his Flemish subjects were strongly against war with England, and John supported them as best he could, even working to solidify commercial agreements. That's not to say he didn't march an army into Flanders and call upon his brother Anthony, Duke of Brabant, to help defend it when an English contingent attacked in 1405. But all the while, he did what he could to keep the negotiations alive. However, it was with the tax issue that John found his path to political popularity. It didn't help that Orléans, as well as the king's wife Isabeau, were throwing more and more extravagant banquets, presumably with some of the money from the average taxpayers. Certainly without inviting the average taxpayers, so the extravagance was a good thing for John to bring up. Not that he was running for office, but popularity, especially among the people of Paris, would be important. In early 1405, John made a show of raging against taxes during a council session before departing Paris, and word got around. Later that year, in the summer, he was summoned by the king to participate in another session, perhaps also to pay homage to the king after John's mother died and left him in charge of Artois and other French counties. John came back to Paris and brought a few thousand armed men with him. Burgundian pomp, you understand. But Louis of Orléans, as well as his ally, the king's wife, Queen Isabeau, got jittery at all the soldiers marching to Paris and their relative unpopularity, so they skipped town. They tried to get the king's son, the young Dauphin Louis, out as well, but John got to him quickly and escorted him back to the city, for his own safety. Dauphin Louis's wife was John's daughter, after all, so while there were political motivations, much like his father's house, John's house was described as loving, and he truly cared for his political pawns, I mean his daughters. John received a lavish welcome in Paris, and after quickly soaking in the adulation, John went to the king, paid proper homage, and lodged formal complaints against Orléans, saying his misrule was messing up the kingdom. He was essentially publicly and formally denouncing Orléans, and specifically the taxing and spending, mostly on lavish celebrations, that had been going on. Orléans snapped back and John responded, positioning himself as a reformer. He would root out the corruption in Paris. People were constantly skimming the taxes they collected, ripping off the people, and doing generally nasty things. It's not clear whether or not John truly believed in these reforms, but they made sense from his point of view, and he was a natural ally of the burgher class. By late September, it appeared there might be an actual civil war. There would be, but not yet. The two men, a year apart in age, had positioned themselves as antagonists, rivals for the king's favor. 
and whoever received that favor would be able to steer the ship of state as the king slipped further into madness. Barry and the Duke of Bourbon, the king's maternal uncle, were able to arrange a reconciliation in October. John's attempt to seize power, which may not have been entirely his initial intent but was put into overdrive when Orléans fled the city, was not successful. But he achieved something in getting himself into the Regency Council and a position of greater power. But the reconciliation between John and Louis of Orléans didn't last long. For two years, there were arguments, attempts to curry favor, and open animosity which seemed like it could lead to a real war. They were opposed on most issues, and Orléans even allied himself with Liège and Gelders, a bishopric and a duchy in the Low Countries that were revolting and waging war against Burgundian authority. Then, in October of 1407, after two years of this conflict, Orléans went to visit the queen, his ally. Some say they were lovers, but that's not clear at all. Not that you could blame her. Her husband was literally insane. She had just given birth, and Orléans went to pay his respects. He was told by an attendant that the king needed him, and as he went outside to head over to the palace, he was set upon by a group of more than a dozen men hired by John the Fearless. They attacked him in his retinue, and on November 23, 1407, the king's younger brother, Louis of Orléans, was murdered in the streets of Paris. John had had his main rival murdered, and then he showed up at the funeral and mourned properly, initially playing coy. But it was pretty clear that the signs would point to him as a responsible party, so he owned up to it, telling Barry and Bourbon the day after the funeral that he had had the Duke killed before immediately fleeing Paris for Flanders. He went to lay low in the Low Countries, Vincent Vega style, and immediately began working on how to spin this with his people. And it would not be as hard as it seems. Even if polite society saw this as what it was, cold-blooded murder, the rabble of Paris, and really more than the rabble of Paris, the burghers that were starting to gain power in the city during the late Middle Ages, absolutely hated Orléans. Not that he was some evil counselor whispering in the ear of the king to make life miserable for his enemies, although the people of Paris may have thought so. He was just an extremely ostentatious, overly generous, not very serious, happy royal who happened to be the guy steering the ship of state, spending all the people's money on lavish parties where they were never invited. Your typical French duke if you ever saw one, laying on hammocks all day, eating soft cheese. John, on the other hand, well, he was a man of the people. He wanted to reduce their taxes. He wanted to avoid war with the English. He wanted life for the burghers to be easier and to let them have more power. He knew he was beloved in the capital, and the capital was what mattered. He just had to play the waiting game. In Flanders, John began crafting his story. He started throwing rumors out there. Orléans was trying to seduce John's wife. Orléans was trying to poison his brother, the king, and take the throne for himself. You name it, Orléans was doing it. Joseph Calmet writes that John was, quote, master of the arts of slander and political strategy. He had introduced into his entourage two different sets of henchmen, 
hired assassins who were ready to do away with anyone who stood in their master's way, and clerks whose bold propaganda confused the issues and covered up the Duke's tracks so successfully that the average Frenchman was totally unable to distinguish what was lawful from what was not, unquote. John's justification would be simple. Presented to the court in Paris over four hours, it was summed up by the lines, quote, It is permissible and meritorious to kill a tyrant. The Duke of Orléans was a tyrant. Therefore, the Duke of Burgundy did well to kill him, unquote. Orléans' widow and the queen begged the king to bring justice to John. But the people of Paris wanted John to be the one who took Orléans' role beside the king and they saw him as a reformer, their savior. John could see Paris was on his side, so he made his way back with a large retinue of Burgundian soldiers. On February 28th, a whole three months after the murder had been carried out, he returned to the city, greeted by cheering crowds. He visited his daughter Margaret and her husband the Dauphin. He was back, and he was accepted again. This shows the state of mind France was in, a mad king, a devastating war with England that had started 70 years prior, threatening to resume, while the beginnings of a middle class, dismissed and exploited by everyone, and a working class receiving the same treatment, saw only one man in a position of power on their side. It's not hard to see why they chose him over the notion of justice. Justice? For a man who was taxing them and frittering away their money on his lavish lifestyle? Where was the justice for the burghers and the laborers who were slaughtered after the riots two decades earlier, when they were just trying to maintain their rights? So John was accepted back by them, and the rest of the ruling class did so as well. Perhaps because they knew there was no point in resisting. Perhaps because they thought getting rid of Orléans wasn't exactly the worst thing for France. By the spring of 1408, letters of pardon from the king had been issued. John the Fearless was now the leading figure in the royal court, the most powerful not-insane man in France. But John could not stay in France because there were problems in the Low Countries, and they threatened to spread to his lands. In Liège, which was a prince-bishopric, basically for our purposes that means it was just another imperial principality, but it was headed by a bishop who also had the secular authority for the territory. Liège's prince-bishop was a man named John of Bavaria, the brother of Margaret of Bavaria, John the Fearless's wife. John of Bavaria, though, was a really crummy prince-bishop. He was an overbearing, authoritarian leader that rubbed the nobles and the burghers the wrong way, and he tried to take away their rights. So they kicked him out and tried to run the place on their own. Of course, that would not do. Since John of Bavaria was a representative of the Pope in Rome, the burghers appealed to the Pope in Avignon, who was more than happy to name a new prince bishop. That's why two popes ain't the best idea. John of Bavaria fled Liège and asked his brother-in-law for help. John the Fearless was only happy to do so, as restoring John of Bavaria could essentially make Liège a Burgundian protectorate. So in September of 1408, he hit the pause button on trying to control the French kingdom and headed off to the Netherlands. His army met up with the army of William of Bavaria, John of Bavaria's brother, who also happened to be the Count of Holland, Zeeland, and Hainaut. These rebels chose to give battle, 
and were able to push the Burgundian front line back before being completely outflanked and then demolished. Several thousand were killed. John the Fearless had led a well-organized and tactically skillful campaign. John of Bavaria, did I mention the Prince Bishop is also known as John the Pitiless? Anyway, he murdered a bunch more people and tightened his iron grip on Liège. John the Fearless was paid a large sum by his ally for all of his help. This essentially gave John the Fearless pseudo-control of Liège through his pal, John of Bavaria. Vaughn says the defeat of Liège had other effects as well. Quote, it considerably enhanced John's prestige in general, and his influence in the Netherlands in particular. It demonstrated the solidarity and practical value of the network of relationships or alliances which had been constructed by Philip the Bold and carefully maintained by his son, unquote. John was also able to remind his own upstart towns in Flanders what happened if they got a little too feisty against his authority. After Liège, Burgundy expanded further when in 1409, Anthony, John the Fearless's brother, whose wife had died in 1407, remarried. This time he married Elizabeth of Gorlitz, who was the Duchess of Luxembourg. But back in France, Orléans' widow returned to Paris and worked together with Queen Isabeau to convince her husband that John was actually bad news. The palace started to swing in favor of the Orléanists, and they got King Charles to rescind the letters exonerating the Duke of Burgundy. But the streets of Paris were still firmly on John's side, so that when he returned later in the year, the Queen and Orléans' widow, as well as the King and the Dauphin, all decided they'd rather be elsewhere. They made their way to Tours, while John made his way back to the capital just before New Year's. John, though, did not enter Paris as a conqueror. Well, other than the guy who helped reconquer Liège. Rather, he knew starting a civil war would diminish his power base and could turn the people of Paris against him. So, he said he wanted peace and was able to reinstate his pardon and arrange some sort of reconciliation. In March, all the parties got together in Chartres to pledge eternal loyalty, fidelity, and friendship to each other. Orléans' son, Charles, was there and the two did what was needed to do in order to make everything seem nice and neat but it was all done through gritted teeth, and this piece of Chartres was called a fake piece. John returned to Paris, where he continued to distribute gifts to anyone who had helped him, or those who needed to be convinced to help him. Queen Isabeau even realized she might be better off on Burgundy's side, and allowed herself and her son the Dauphin to be placed under John's protection. He was effectively running the kingdom now. Despite what the treaties said, he was ascendant. His assassination had worked, his rival was gone, and nobody else was powerful enough to stop him. But he was about to gain a new enemy. The daughter of King Charles the Mad died in childbirth at the age of 19. So her widower, Charles of Orléans, son of the murdered Louis of Orléans, remarried. This time, it was to Bon of Armagnac, in April of 1410. With that marriage, young Charles of Orléans found a champion to try to avenge his father, and the Orléanist faction found a new leader in Bon's father, Bernard VII, the Count of Armagnac. The situation soon deteriorated, from being the Burgundy-Orléans rivalry 
to the Burgundian-Armagnac Civil War. Armagnac, allied with the Duke of Berry, John's uncle, who had also been pushed away from the reins of power as Burgundy gained it. They got the other uncle, the Duke of Bourbon, as well as the Count of Alençon on their side too. This wasn't a let's-go-give-John-a-piece-of-our-mind kind of alliance. This was a let's-go-raise-a-bigger-army-than-John-who-thinks-he's-so-powerful-and-maybe-kick-his-butt-out-of-Paris-then-confiscate-all-his-lands kind of alliance. They put together their army and proceeded to march to Paris. Not a well-disciplined group planning on patiently besieging the city until negotiations were held, this army ravaged the countryside on their way to ravaging the Parisian suburbs. But it was getting late in the year, and at the onset of winter, Charles VI had an onset of sanity. In his temporary state of usefulness, he arranged for another peace, fake as it was, and kept a full-on war from breaking out, at least at the end of 1410. But by early the next year, the pillaging resumed despite the treaties, and Charles finally sent an insulting challenge to John for revenge of his father's death, which John gladly accepted. John knew he was up against an allied group of French feudal lords, but John had a group of Burgundian lords on his side, which was more than just the duchy. His brother Anthony, the Duke of Brabant, John of Bavaria, John's brother William of Bavaria and Count of Holland and Hainaut, He had other allies as well, including, for a time, the Duke of Brittany. And Paris still favored him. As Richard Vaughan puts it, this popular support was the basis of his position. He knew if he could defeat the Armagnacs, France would be totally under his control. He gathered an army and returned to Paris late in the year. Thanks to the pillaging by the Armagnacs, the king too gave his support to John in the Civil War. There was some fighting, but as usual, everything stopped for the winter. John, ever the politician, knew the alliances needed to extend beyond the military. He went to the funeral of the son of a Parisian burgher who had been killed in a battle fighting for him. According to Calmet, quote, He was frequently to be seen in the area of Léal, which was near his townhouse, the Hotel d'Artois. Noble man though he was, he was quite ready to shake hands with the working-class leaders. He cultivated the friendship of butchers, tripe men, skinners. He distributed to the most humble the same presence which he lavished on his supporters among the nobility and the burgesses. Everywhere he went, he was greeted by cheers, unquote. It was really unprecedented, something more reminiscent of a late Republican Roman statesman than a prince of the blood in late medieval France. Both sides, meanwhile, courted the English and used France's enemy to help them fight the other side. Which shows how much this was about patriotism and how much this was about trying to grab power. The Armagnacs tried to besiege Paris, but John marched through with the support of the king, who was under his control. The Armagnacs made a formal alliance with the English. The English they were so desperate to defeat John. John did have some English pals in his army, but he had nothing like a formal alliance with King Henry. Yet. Burgundy defeated a large group of Ecorsers, armed mercenaries that the Count of Armagnac had hired to essentially pillage the countryside. But as the Duke of Berry was negotiating an English invasion plan with the Duke of Lancaster, John realized he might get into some real trouble. And by real trouble, I mean his Netherlands trade with the English could be reduced. So he agreed to another peace deal, arranged in the summer of 1412. 
1413, the Estates General met in an attempt to placate the third estate, which means the commoners. The burghers and the other commoners were again upset with their tax burden, and they now had a champion in John who had vigorously argued on their behalf. Initially, things seemed to go well. Besides the tax reforms, there were those who had seriously abused their office for personal gain, and many were punished. Discussions of reforms to be enacted to prevent so much graft were beginning to solidify. But as the negotiations dragged on, the people of Paris became impatient. Eventually, the first mass demonstration in front of the Bastille in French history would turn into a riot, led initially by the Butcher's Guild, which essentially gave control of the city to this group and their allies. Called the Cabochian Revolution after their leader Caboche, they had surprised John with their act. He didn't appreciate that the groups he was championing had different aims. The Burgesses and other upper-class city leaders were not happy with this turn of events. But John was unable to stop the chaos in the city. Well, he probably could have marched troops in, but he couldn't just destroy his allies. He was at a loss. Calmet writes, quote, He did not realize that he could not both foment an insurrection and check it at will, unquote. Or, as Mike Duncan has said, and I'm paraphrasing here, you can start a revolution, but you can't expect to control it. Now, as far as riots and revolutions go, this was a minor one at best. They weren't trying to overthrow the monarchy or the king, or even those dark-hearted advisors who have led the king astray, or whatever William the Silent would say. They wanted reforms to improve the working-level officials. They wanted voting for those officials, which was, you know, a non-starter, but their aims weren't much beyond that administrative reform. In the course of doing these things, though, they imprisoned, tortured, and killed several high-ranking officials with Armagnac ties. With the streets in the hands of the mob, Burgundy lost a powerful ally, the Dauphin, Louis. He was now 10 years old and was beginning to see that maybe his father-in-law, John, was not the best protector in the world. It was in that summer that he started to turn instead to the Armagnacs for support. John, meanwhile, had cornered himself into a position where he had to either grit his teeth and smile through all of the mess or march in and put a stop to it. But he believed that would have also crushed his political support in Paris, so he didn't act decisively. Instead, another sham peace was signed among the princes. This allowed the Dauphin to arrest a few agitators among the rioters. And since they were at peace now, what excuse did they have to riot? John was stuck, and there were rumors of potential trials or even an assassination attempt. So in August of 1413, he fled Paris for Flanders. The Armagnac army marched in, but rather than just round up the revolutionaries for punishment and execution, Bernard of Armagnac decided to go all Marius on Paris and began rounding up even moderate Burgundian allies. Executions were not plentiful outside of the core Cabochians, but confiscation of property and titles certainly was. So while John might have been persona non grata among the middle and upper class who were fearful of the mob, the city soon was begging John to come back and put an end to the violence. But now the Armagnacs held the city, and they held it tightly. And Bernard was an accomplished soldier, so when John marched from the Low Countries to Paris at the head of an army, he found the capital to be staunchly defended, regardless of the public sentiment. He didn't have the resources to besiege the city with him, and when he arrived, the Armagnacs, 
rather than engaging the Burgundians, just marched their army through the streets to hint to the Parisians that an uprising would be a very bad idea. John withdrew, and the Burgundians were suddenly set back on their heels. The Armagnacs took a few cities, such as Soissons, and were pushing north towards Artois and other Burgundian strongholds. Philip, John's youngest brother and the Count of Nevers, submitted to the king and the Armagnacs. Anthony, John's brother and Duke of Brabant, as well as his sister Margaret, who was married to William of Bavaria, attempted to bring Bernard to the negotiating table in the summer of 1414, but they were rebuffed. John sent out feelers to the English, and it may have been when the Dauphin Louis heard about this, he decided it was time to push the Armagnacs to negotiate as well. Well, that and the dysentery that was running through the French army. And being John's son-in-law and heir to the French crown, the Dauphin had a vested interest in neither Bernard nor John becoming too powerful. So he acted as a moderating force, and the Peace of Arras was signed in September of 1414. It wasn't great for John, but his pledge to never talk alliance with the dirty, stinking English allowed him to keep his territories. The peace was of course to be ignored by everyone, but it did put a pause on the hostilities. As everyone was trying to figure out the implications of the agreement, and propaganda was flying around the country again, late 1414 became 1415, and with 1415 came the news that Henry V, King of England, had just landed in Normandy, and he wasn't there for a quick holiday. Landing in August to claim the crown, his inheritance based on his Capetian family tree, Henry began his campaign with quick successes in Normandy. Henry wanted to keep John out of the fight in order to greatly reduce French resistance. Actually, he had negotiated for John to join in on his side, and it would have been good for John to do so. After all, John was in a weakened position, and while he was a vassal of the French crown, maybe, you know, he could still be that under King Henry. John was embroiled in a civil war, and his enemies held Paris and the king. He really wanted to stick them in the eye, but rather than join Henry, he took a middle path. He offered his assistance to King Charles in order to look the part of a French prince, but with too many conditions, and so he was refused. Burgundy wouldn't be coming to counter the English invasion, but it wouldn't be joining the English either. The Armagnacs, for their part, didn't want John to get any of the glory for chasing off the English. If they could win while he sat by aloof, his influence would go up in smoke. If he had offered his help more magnanimously, they couldn't have refused. But since he didn't, they were happy to tell him to go sit on it and stay in Flanders. That is why when the French army and the English army met that October in Agincourt, one of the most famous battles in history and a great victory for the English, the Armagnacs took the brunt of it. Now, some Burgundians still felt the national call to arms, including Anthony of Brabant, who was killed in the battle. Anthony was not recognized. It's said that he rushed to the battle and didn't have time to don his armor, so when he was captured, he was executed rather than held for ransom, as the vastly outnumbered English had begun executing prisoners, at least until the battle was clearly won, because they didn't have the men to fight and hold POWs. At least that's what they said. John lost a reliable and valuable ally when Anthony died, but he would not suffer the loss of his territory as well. 
John fought hard with the imperial authority to ensure that Anthony's son, John IV, would inherit all of his father's holdings in Brabant and Luxembourg. John IV would continue Anthony's policy of being a steadfast ally to John and his heirs and remain loyal to the Burgundian state. Meanwhile, the victory in Agincourt was complete for the English. Charles of Orléans, the Armagnac champion for whom Bernard was ostensibly fighting, was captured. The Dauphin Louis died soon after. The new Dauphin Jean was not considered a man of much worth. The king was still mad. The Valois dynasty looked like it was going to be replaced with the Lancastrian branch of the Capetian dynasty after all. John surveyed the field in early 1416, after the fallout from Agincourt seemed to be at its most bleak, and he pledged loyalty to the man he figured would soon be king of France, Henry V. Well, first he tried one more time to take Paris back, but his schemes failed and Bernard still held the city. So John saw the writing on the wall and bent the knee, as it were. Actually, what he did was sign a secret treaty with Henry in May that said his subjects would remain neutral in the conflict, and they would in turn not be bothered by the English army. The two men met, and a treaty was worked out in May of 1417. John had his reasons, but make no mistake, he was now a traitor to the House of Valois. Now that may not exactly be the way it was interpreted then, but there is a reason it has been called Unpact Infernal. A copy of it shows it was written in John's hand, although it was never formally ratified, which may have been done on purpose so that John had a chance to weasel his way out of it. Meanwhile, as the English ran roughshod across France, Paris was in complete chaos. John kept stirring the pot, subsidizing revolts, publicly promising to end all taxes, and launching attacks on Armagnac-held lands nearby. The new Dauphin John died, and King Charles's son Charles became the new New Dauphin. And unlike his other brothers, this Charles was not married to a Burgundian princess. He decided, after some vacillating, to properly defend Paris against John. France was a shambles, with apparently three sides to the conflict, although in reality, the English and the Burgundians were in league with each other. Or at the very least, they weren't at odds. John spent 1417 taking more and more Armagnac territory. According to Vaughan, quote, the actual fighting in the summer of 1417 was confused, sporadic, and indecisive. There were no pitch battles, though a number of towns fell only to John the Fearless after a more or less prolonged siege. The Civil War in 1417 consisted, in the main, of a process of piecemeal conquests and persuasion, whereby many of the principal towns of France were won over to John the Fearless. Gradually, the Burgundian ring round Paris tightened, but the Armagnac government there held firm, unquote. Henry spent his time conquering Normandy and setting up his own government there. John, for his part, either conspired with Queen Isabeau or straight up kidnapped her. She may have just realized it was time to switch sides. He set her up in the city of Troyes and essentially proclaimed her to be queen regent. His uncle, the Duke of Berry, had also recognized the new government that of the Duke and the Queen, bringing over much of the south of France. By early 1418, John was again in charge of almost all of France. In Paris, meanwhile, an ally of John the Fearless managed to steal the keys to the gates of the city while the holder of said keys was asleep, and the Burgundians were able to slip in and retake the capital. No, I'm not making this up. 
the streets exploded, with the new new Dauphin fleeing and barely getting away with his life. Bernard was not so lucky, and the head of the Armagnac faction was killed by the mob. More imprisonment, more executions followed, and while John was not around to play Sulla, neither was he present to stop the violence. Returning from negotiations with Sigismund over imperial affairs, he first went to his ducal capital in Dijon when he heard the news, rather than going to Paris. He spent a month there before joining Queen Isabeau in Troyes. Meanwhile, four bishops, 300 university members, and surely others unaccounted for, had been killed in the reprisals. He allowed the wave of violence to spend itself, waiting a few more weeks before finally heading towards the capital. In mid-July 1418, with lavish splendor that often accompanied the Burgundian court, John and Queen Isabel re-entered Paris in something of a Roman triumph to continue the analogy. They marched to the Louvre and greeted the waiting king. John then began to round up and imprison and then execute the worst offenders of the terror that had just occurred in the city, returning law and order to the capital. He had played his hand beautifully, if not morally, and was now once again atop the French political sphere. But the English were marching on the capital, and, well, what side was John on anyway? Would he allow Paris to fall to Henry, as he did Rouen? Rouen had resisted the English onslaught, but despite kicking out the Armagnacs and putting up staunch resistance led by their Burgundian captain, John did not send troops to bail them out. Rouen was forced to submit, and Henry came ever closer to Paris, now held by his possible ally. John had the choice of revealing his pact with Henry or patching up that old civil war. The Dauphin Charles was holed up in Bourges, leading a rival government, and John agreed upon a negotiation with him. Don't get confused, the Dauphin Charles is not Charles of Orléans, who was the son of Louis of Orléans. Charles of Orléans had been captured at Agincourt. But the Dauphin Charles was on the Armagnac-Orléans side of the Civil War at this point, but not necessarily fully on the team. Mostly, he wanted all the princes of the realm knocked down a peg so that he could rule safely when it was his turn. But John was in charge of France while Charles stood in Bourges, claiming that he was really the one in charge. Both, in fact, were negotiating with the English to try to gain control over the other, while Henry slowly gained control of Normandy but probably didn't have the funds to hold it for a long time unless, you know, he took Paris and the crown. Despite the mutual distrust, in July of 1419, the Dauphin and the Duke had their men meet publicly and stated that they were going to work together to kick out the English. Lords swore oaths of allegiance to John or Charles. Paris celebrated. But all was not as it seemed. They agreed to meet again, perhaps to hammer out a plan of action against the English. But perhaps because the two sides had not agreed to much of anything other than, like, being friends and kicking the English out. So they agreed to meet again in September, at the Bridge of Montereau. What happened on the Bridge of Montereau on September 10th is not all clear. What we do know is that the Duke and the Dauphin, along with some of their important feudal lords, met out in the middle of the bridge. There are conflicting stories of what happened on the bridge, but almost all agree that one of Charles's retainers took his axe down upon John's head before the Duke had time to react. He was dead, and Charles, 
perhaps from the guardhouse on the other side of the bridge, allegedly watched the assassination, unmoved and unemotional. His men then cut off John's hand, just as John's men had done to Charles's uncle, Louis of Orléans. The more traditional belief, first introduced in letters to the cities of France by the Dauphin, is that there was an argument, a scuffle ensued, in which John was killed. Vaughn dismisses this and lays out why it was almost certainly premeditated, and that the initial blow may have even come when John was kneeling in front of the Dauphin. Regardless, after 15 years as the Duke, John the Fearless was dead. The Duchy of Burgundy, as well as his other holdings, were inherited by his eldest son Philip, who was Count of Charolais at the time. John had not fully succeeded in taking over France, but he had continued his father's work of making Burgundy into a powerful entity unto itself. It's not clear if John considered himself more Burgundian than French. He seemed to prefer Paris to Dijon or Flanders, and despite all his efforts to expand his territory, his main schemes always revolved around controlling France, not making Burgundy an entity unto itself. It was only after he realized he had lost his unofficial regency that he turned to Henry. Control of the king and of the kingdom of France always seemed to be his aim, at least until after that moment. From that point, it could be said that maybe he did care more about Burgundy than France. We'll never know, but with his son Philip, it becomes much clearer. Under John, Burgundy had certainly grown in power and prestige. Thanks to his own holdings in Flanders and strong alliances with his brother Anthony, the Duke of Brabant, and his brothers-in-law, John and William of Bavaria, who controlled Liège and Holland and Zeeland and Haino, John had virtual control of, as Calmet puts it, quote, the broad sweep of coastline from the Somme to the Zyder Zee, unquote. He also writes that the Scheldt, a traditional boundary between France and Germany, had become, quote, a Burgundian river, unquote. Calmet then goes on to quote Belgian historian Henri Perrin, who wrote, quote, for centuries it had marked the boundary between France and Germany, but now there was growing up between the two countries a compact coalition of territories belonging to princes of the same family, which forced back the frontiers of the two states, as if a wedge were being driven between them, unquote. Burgundy crossed the borders of the two most powerful states of the time in that region, and it becomes something that could operate independently at times. Philip the Bold set the course of this, but John the Fearless made it a reality. By the time he died, his son Philip, known as Philip the Good, would inherit a nominally independent state, as France was at its weakest position in centuries. Jean Sans Peur, John Without Fear, over the course of his 15 years as Duke, led some expansion, but more so a consolidation of territory for Burgundy, as well as further imparting Burgundian influence and dominance on the Low Countries. And he orchestrated control of France that made him the most powerful man in the kingdom, at times, when he wasn't the most wanted man in the kingdom. He was devious, double-dealing, and deceptive, but he was also creative in his methods to the point of brilliance, and so he was able to accomplish so much of what he set out to do. It's not hard to imagine that if he hadn't been murdered by Dauphin Charles's men, he would have eventually regained control of the kingdom. Who knows what that would have meant for Henry and the Hundred Years' War. As it was, he, just like his father, 
and the other French princes of his age, was much more concerned with his own territories than with France itself. He was a leader of a network of territories, the leader of the House of Valois, Burgundy, and that was always his priority. Vaughan notes that John was neither arbitrary nor despotic, and valued greatly the advice of his counselors, and even seeking counsel from his civil servants when appropriate, but that he, quote, was a masterful opportunist who acted impulsively, with speed and decision, on the spur of the moment. As a ruler, one of his principal failings was his inability or refusal to weigh the consequences of his actions, unquote. Calmette is even less kind, but still impressed by his abilities. I think he sums up John pretty well. Quote, John the Fearless was devoid of both prejudices and scruples. Whether he achieved his ends by fair means or foul mattered little to the clear-sighted, strong-willed statesman who invested new political methods and put them unhesitatingly into operations, unquote. Next time, we'll see what happens when Philip the Good, the new Duke of Burgundy, looks around and sees a crumbling France to his west, a Holy Roman Empire to his east, too preoccupied with events in Hungary, Bohemia, and further east to pay any attention, and a Burgundy that had grown to the size and strength of a true medieval state. Thanks for listening. <laughs>